Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. During the Jim Crow era, many public places were segregated, including some national and state parks. We'll hear about one green space in Virginia that was an important gathering spot for black families throughout central Appalachia. I learned how to swim down here. Because black kids didn't know how to swim. This was our swimming place. For a lot of writers and publishers, Appalachia means stories about the rural experience, like coal mining or farming. But that's not the West Virginia I grew up in, and it's not the one I could authentically write about. We'll hear why Marie Manila calls herself an urban Appalachia writer. And we'll meet a family with roots in Mexico and in Appalachia. The styles of music are so different. The um, culture around it is very similar. It involves food, people dancing together, people singing and improvising and playing in nature. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. In the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps and other New Deal programs created parks across America. But many of these places were closed off to black people, especially in the Jim Crow South. In Clifton Forge, Virginia, the local branch of the NAACP pushed for the creation of a recreation area for black people. So the state of Virginia partnered with the U.S. Forest Service, and in 1937, they opened Green Pastures. It became a destination for generations of Black people across central Appalachia. Now there's an effort to gather the stories of people who grew up swimming and playing at Green Pastures. My Inside Appalachia co-host, Mason Adams, has more. Green Pastures was officially integrated in 1950 but it continued to be a gathering spot for black families from southwestern Virginia. When I visit the park in late September, one of the first people I see is Curtis Beverly, who lives in nearby Iron Gate and grew up coming here. He's with his wife, Virginia Spinner Beverly. What was your first memories of this park? I was knee-high to a grasshopper then. We used to have our church outings down here. We're looking out at a bright green field, ringed with old pines and hardwoods. When Curtis was a kid, this was a big ball field. A Trula Clark Moore remembers the games there. When you come through the entrance and up the road and you look to the right to this field, it would be people playing baseball and all kinds of games. A lot of folks remember what Green Pastures was like in its heyday in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. As soon as we turned off that road, we were assaulted by the sound of children. Children were everywhere. It looked like ants. And their laughter was standing up in the car, you know, aching to get out, aching to get out. And we would park in the parking lot, and there was a footbridge, and we'd follow a path up to another open area, and that was the beach area. And that's where the lake was. Yeah, we just had picnics and cookouts and Swimming, a lot of them swam. I didn't, but a lot of them swam. I learned how to swim down here. Because black kids didn't know how to swim. This was our swimming place. And that area would be full of people picnicking. The picnic tables, people cooking out, um, people playing games, horseshoes. (laughs) 
And my grandmother used to come here every Sunday and set up and everybody would want to be around her because she was a good cook and she fed everybody. Our mothers, everybody's mother, would put the food in that pavilion. The kids would head off to the beach. The dads would be on the dam, jumping into the deep end of the water. So it was just a full day of fun, food, friends, beautiful time. That was Clifton Forge Mayor Pamela Marshall, Gregory Key, Trula Clark Moore, Ethel Thompson, and Virginia Spinner Beverly. And one thing that's important not to lose sight of is that because Green Pastures fulfilled the role it did as a recreation site specifically dedicated to black people during the final decades of Jim Crow, it wasn't just a place for people from Clifton Forge, but from the broader region, even into West Virginia. Here's historian Josh Howard, who grew up in Clifton Forge and worked on the campaign to restore green pastures. The Forest Service was really planning on anybody from within roughly a 200 to 250 mile radius using green pastures, right? So this was a park that was built not just for Clifton Forge and Covington, but also for Charlottesville and for Roanoke, and even for like the southern West Virginia coal fields, which at the time were roughly like 30 or 40 percent African American. So let's say you came to Green Pastures on a random weekend in 19, you know, 1946 you were going to encounter families from all throughout the entire, really, Appalachian and Western Virginia region. That's part of what Ethel Thompson remembers. I mean, we can look up and see people from all over the country come just stopping down at this park. By the 80s, Green Pastures, now called Longdale Recreation Area, was starting to fade. By the 2000s, the Forest Service stopped maintaining the park. That's where the park was when a local history group called What's Your Story got involved. People from all walks of life shared their memories of green pastures. 21 of them were collected in a published book. The project's director is Joan Vannersdahl. The What's Your Story project is what unified us all and what literally, physically brought us all together to witness what happened here and what it meant to people's lives here. And that's that was the stimulus. The people around the What's Your Story project began working together to restore green pastures. The effort included everyone from the family that lived next to the park and had been keeping it up for years, to the mayor of Clifton Forge. The door opened when we said, tell us your story. And the story was heard by the state at the right time. We were told, actually, um, by the regional director of the state parks that it was the history of this place and their awareness of it that saved it. And that led to this day in September, when Virginia Governor Ralph Northam showed up to announce the state would lease green pastures from the Forest Service, clean it up, and operate it as a seasonal state park unit. It's also worth remembering Northam got hit with the blackface scandal in 2019, the second year of a single term as governor. He's since presided over a racial reckoning in Virginia. That's included not just the Black Lives Matter rallies of 2020, but the removal of many Confederate statues and monuments across the state, including the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond, just days before he made this speech at the Green Pastures ribbon cutting. We are telling a story based on facts, not myths. It's important to acknowledge past wrongs and the harm done Clifton Forge Mayor Pamela Marshall announced that Green Pastures is open once again. Come back to Green Pastures. Utilize these resources. Enjoy once again this piece of history 
and, and witness this miracle in the mountains for many years to come. Clifton Forge resident Gregory Key, who worked on the Oral History Project, said the ribbon cutting marked a milestone. You know, because it's been a long time coming and this place has been missed. Green Pastures is open again. The field, the lake, the trails, they're all ready for new memories to be made. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams in Longdale Furnace. Up next, we'll learn about a band that describes their music as Mexalachian. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. This is the Lua Project. They call their music Mexalachian, a blend of Appalachian old-time and Mexican folk songs. But members of the band say their music also draws on Jewish and Eastern European traditions. Their sound is a musical manifestation of what it means to connect with a mixed cultural identity, a journey which isn't always easy. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett caught up with a couple members of the band at their home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, there's, um, um, <laughs> <laughs> Estella Diaz-Noth and her husband, Dave Brzezanski, play music professionally with their band, The Lua Project. But today, they're playing as a family. Their daughters have recently started learning the Mexalachian songs. They're 13 and 11. Try it. Estella, mommy will be holding, mama will be holding the, uh, the regular part. That's fine. Mexalachian music is especially personal to Estella, who grew up in Luray, Virginia, to a Mexican mother and a Scots-Irish father. Dave has Jewish, Slavic, and Appalachian roots, and together they've made it their mission to merge their various identities into music. I wanted to give my girls the, the world. I want them to know where they come from. That's the whole purpose of this, is we're writing music that before we pass on, we want it to be ingrained in them so that they can pass it down to their children. Their sound reflects their mixed cultural backgrounds, a fusion that Dave parallels to food. You start to say like, okay, well, food-wise, what's mexilation? Well, you know, well, it's beans, pork, and corn, right? And so then you say, okay, well, those are like really central to both of those cuisines. And you start to see that like they can filter together and interweave themselves in various ways that are totally organic and totally legit. He says it's similar with music. The, the essential rhythm that drives much of Appalachian and country music, it's boom, chicka, 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 boom, boom, boom. That's the same rhythm that's found in musical styles in Latin America, Dave says. And since they're made of the same elements, there's lots of room for creativity. Are we going to have banjo on this track or are we going to have accordion on this track? Or let's be honest, we're just going to have both, right? And that's going to work. 
Estela's father is from Virginia. Her mother is from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. After they married, they settled in her father's hometown in the Shenandoah Valley. My mom was actually the first Mexican woman in Luray, Virginia. This was in 1967, and interracial marriage had only recently been legalized in Virginia. So it was really challenging for my parents, um, and not, not just in a white community, but also the Latino community. 2,000 miles away from home, she never felt so all alone. A city girl from a desert land, this wasn't quite what she planned. In the first couple years, it was so hard on her mother that they moved back to El Paso, Texas, across the border from her hometown. And that didn't turn out so well either because, um, you know, the people in her community were not accepting of the fact that she had married outside of her race. When they came back to Luray, Estella's mom decided if people weren't going to reach out to her, she'd reach out to them. She started to have, like fiestas in the community and taught like our church um, kids how to dance, you know, Mexican dances and Mexican food and um, just created a, a really beautiful vibe. And eventually it's sort of like more people started to come. As an adult, Estella has followed in her mother's footsteps. My passion is very much um, in cultural organizing. And then through that cultural organizing, I, I get inspired and I write music from it. But she says she hasn't always felt grounded in her Mexilatin identity. Growing up in um, any sort of dominant culture, you just want to blend in. Estella wrote this song called Mexilatin Breakfast as a tribute to her childhood. Just my Mexilatin breakfast. We would have like sausage and gravies and oh, there were the, the tamales that we made, you know, for for the holidays, so we just heat those up too and you throw that on the plate too. These kinds of things always happened, you know. She says she assimilated at a young age, but when she went off to college to study social work, I was like, oh my gosh, there's this piece of me that I feel is missing. That's when she found spirituality. That's sort of like doing sweat lodges and going up on the mountain for fasts sort of brought me to a space one time during a fast of dreaming about the native women of Mexico, I had these visions of these women that I needed, I felt like I really needed to connect to, um, that were my, <laughs> excuse me, they were women that I didn't get to meet. My mother's mother, I would see once a year. There's so many questions I would ask her now. <laughs> Estella had visited the border town where her mother is from many times, but suddenly she wanted to spend time deeper in the country. So in her mid-twenties, she went with her family to Puebla in south-central Mexico. And I just couldn't hold myself together. <laughs> like, um, I get emotional just going back there. Like, the, the smells, just the, the, um, the sound of the streetcars. The, the food in the streets, um, the markets with the fruit rotting, the, you know, just everything was just like hitting me like a genetic memory or something. I don't know. After spending a couple of weeks in Puebla, she reluctantly came back to the U.S. Everything in me was saying I needed to spend more time there. This was in 2000. She and Dave had recently started dating, 
and together they hatched a plan to spend a year traveling through Latin America together. They started in Mexico, where they were introduced to San Jarocho. The music from Veracruz, Mexico, that inspired all of this Mexilatin music. And they discovered the Fandango. It's a, a community celebration where all the San Jarocho musicians get together in the Puebla and they gather around a tarima, that platform over there, a wooden platform, bigger, of course, and um, they play son jarocho music. She says they would often play music outdoors, in fields or in the woods, and camp out, similar to an old-time festival in the Appalachians. Even though this, the, the, the styles of music are so different, the um, culture around it is very similar. It involves food, people dancing together, people singing and improvising and playing in nature. Estella and Dave came back to the U.S., where they began experimenting with the fusion of Mexican folk music and Appalachian old time. Eventually, they settled in Charlottesville, where they had their two girls, Luna and Mariana. Having kids would change their music, and Dave's relationship with his cultural identity. Dave grew up in northern Virginia, feeling largely removed from his Jewish, Slavic, and Appalachian heritage. So at a certain point, you know, you become assimilated into this sort of amorphous, secular, white, dominant identity. But when they had children, Dave felt called to address the different threads of his ancestry. I felt that... If I'm going to have children and raise them to be adults, they should be grounded to some extent in their actual cultural origins. He started getting involved with the local Jewish community. When I started hearing the, the traditional melodies from the prayers, I was like, this is the music that has been inside me all this time. He's even been able to find Jewish and Middle Eastern melodies within music from Latin America. As parents, Estella and Dave began to finally feel rooted in their cultural identities. So all of a sudden, I felt like our musical purpose um, was clearer. Dave says he hopes their music encourages people to dive deeper into their own threads of cultural identity. I think... There are a lot of people who are profoundly lonely and profoundly culturally lost. Estella and Dave say they've both been there, and it was hard work to reconnect. You have to do the work. You have to go back and you know, you look at old photographs, like talk to your grandparents or whatever. Maybe go to the community in which you're from. Estella says she wants to leave this music behind for her girls and her Mexilachan community to inspire a sense of belonging she didn't have growing up. I always felt like I, had, I was on this line, just walking this line, that I didn't belong here in the Mexican community. I didn't belong in the, you know, white community that I, that I grew up in. Um, I just didn't fit in anywhere. But with time and through music, Estella's realized... I am, I am a bridge across this line. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. The Lua Project's new album is coming out this fall. Next, we turn our attention to some challenges that people who rent homes or apartments are facing. 
Last year, the Centers for Disease Control issued an eviction moratorium to keep the COVID-19 virus from spreading. In parts of central Appalachia, the moratorium was one of the few things keeping some families afloat. But now there's no longer a federal policy in place to prevent evictions. The Supreme Court ruled against the Biden administration's eviction moratorium on August 26, which ended protections that were supposed to extend into early October. As Katie Myers reports, the end of these eviction protections is creating new health risks. It's a short drive from Interstate 75 to the Relax Inn in Richmond, Kentucky. Melanie Poor and her husband Cody have been staying there since last week, after their landlord took advantage of the end of the CDC eviction moratorium. We were praying that it would stay in effect because that would keep us in our home at least three months or so. After years as a server at a restaurant, Melanie developed a lung disease that forced her to stop working. Cody supported the family with a landscaping job. And that was fine, until suddenly COVID-19 knocked their lives off balance. I had a quarantine, and then uh, somebody at work was around it. Then somebody else got it, had a quarantine. I ain't been able to really work in a month and a half now. The protections of the early pandemic kept them from free fall, says Melanie. We had the stimulus checks. We had unemployment. We had, you can't get evicted. Since their eviction, the poorest have applied to seven homes. One almost came through, but when the landlords saw they were getting assistance to pay for it, they stopped responding. The poors are trying not to worry their kids who are staying with family. But the longer things go, the harder it feels to look on the bright side. Well, I have my husband telling me, we're going to get through this. It's going to get better. But at the same time, you have sunk in such a depression. Research shows that especially in a pandemic, evictions can have lasting health impacts for kids and parents alike. Megan Hatch is an associate professor at Cleveland State University. Folks who had been evicted were more likely to report having depression or anxiety disorders, even seven, eight years later. Hatch says when you combine higher eviction rates in a region with lower vaccination rates, it's a bad situation. Sheltering in place, staying at home. Well, that only works if you have a safe, healthy, secure place to live. What are you looking for, really, in this case? Are you looking for the money that you're owed, or are you looking for them to be out? Looking for them to be out. Caitlin McDaniel is a legal aid attorney in southeastern Ohio. She's been on the front lines, helping those not protected anymore by the moratorium. She says after the Supreme Court ruled against the moratorium in late August, cases spiked. It was, you know, found to be unconstitutional, and then we did have a pretty sharp increase. McDaniel and others with Southeastern Ohio Legal Services say the lack of affordable housing in the region is compounding the issue for their clients. And one county eviction judge won't allow them to host a clinic anymore now that the moratorium has been repealed. Um, He felt that there was not a need for the clinic anymore, and he said there wasn't space for us. Back at the hotel in Kentucky, Melanie Poor says she sees lots of need around her. This place is like packed with people who have some of the kind of same story due to being evicted last year. For Cody Poor, it's hard to think more than a couple of days ahead, let alone find a job when he doesn't know where he'll be next week. One minute, you got a roof over your head, you're working paycheck to paycheck, but you're staying afloat. And then you're just, you're in a uh, hotel, everything was fine, and then it seems like on a roller coaster, straight down. A few days after this interview, the Poors found a place to rent and were able to move out of the motel. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers.
An increase in evictions isn't the only issue facing renters. Reporters Kate Giamarisi and Rich Lord have been looking into various issues with the rental market in Pittsburgh. They've heard about tenant organizing and unsafe living conditions in low-income housing. Rich and Kate have been reporting a year-long series of stories for WESA and Public Source. Our producer Roxy Todd spoke with them about why this reporting matters and why it's not just an issue that people in Pittsburgh should care about. Okay, Kate, let's start with you. Why did you and Rich decide to begin looking into these issues? Well, Rich and I had worked together in our previous jobs at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We had collaborated on some stories there, but we were now working at two different news organizations. I'm at WESA, which is the NPR station in Pittsburgh. Rich is at Public Source, which is a local news website here that focuses on in-depth reporting. And I would say in sort of late 2020, we sort of started texting back and forth to figure out if we could do something that would sort of advance people's understanding of some housing issues here in Pittsburgh. In late 2020, obviously, that's in the midst of the pandemic. And we saw a number of people really, you know, facing rental issues of course, the CDC had a moratorium on evictions, but was that at play with what you guys were thinking of when you decided to look into these issues? Well, so we were sort of wanting to explore the eviction moratoriums. We wanted to look at, you know, last year our state had a rent relief program that frankly did not go well. We sort of wanted to, you know, dive into a little bit of what went wrong. We also sort of wanted to look at kind of a emerging tenants' rights movement. And also, quite candidly, Roxy, we I think we both wanted to get out of our living rooms and be um, out and reporting out, out in the in the streets, so to speak. We saw in census data also that Pittsburgh had gone from being a majority homeowner city to a majority renter city. And that seemed like a pretty big deal to us because that that was a big transition and we felt like our you know local elected officials were maybe not aware of this and had not adjusted to this you know that that shift from being a, a homeowner majority city to a renter majority city was really intriguing to me because this has long been a place where houses could be had pretty cheaply and therefore you know people were able to become homeowners at an early age uh and it was really a homeowner-based culture. Renter was almost a bad word in some neighborhoods. Uh, so we started looking not only at the city of Pittsburgh, but also at some of the uh, neighboring and nearby municipalities and small cities to see whether that same shift was occurring elsewhere, whether we were getting to the point where renters' interests were you know, as important or potentially even in some cases more important than the homeowner interests, which had traditionally kind of dominated the civic discourse. And so for this series, one of the stories you really zoomed in on was a low-income housing facility in McKeesport. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. When we were looking at uh, the the data, the census data, we noticed that there is a city uh, called McKeesport in which homeowners and renters were pretty much evenly balanced, 50-50, And uh, McKeesport is kind of an iconic old mill town on the Monongahela River. Stories out of McKeesport are almost always interesting. Uh, So we decided to both dig into the data we already had, develop some new information, and hit up our sources to find out what was happening 
in McKee Sports rental housing market. Yeah, and last month we heard the first of your stories here on Inside Appalachia about problems at the Highview Gardens apartment complex in McKeesport. Let's hear a small clip from your story. These are residents describing the conditions at Highview. I didn't have no heat all this winter. We had bad rodent problems. So I put a bucket here, and then when this was leaking, I had a bucket here. You're supposed to be at comfort, at ease when you come home. You're not supposed to sleep with one eye open. You're not supposed to sleep in discomfort because you don't know what's going on with your home. I'm pretty much here right now because I'm still looking for somewhere else to go. This is the only place I have to lay my head down. Those are tenants Barbara Brown, Daisha Hooper, and Radia Hill. And we heard from them that those are taken from a number of interviews that we did with them in May, June, and July, talking about some of the problems that they and the other tenants were facing at Highview. We, when we found out about Highview Gardens and its issues, we looked up the ownership. The owner that was listed on property records was McKeesport Urban Holdings II. When we dug into the corporation uh, papers of McKeesport Urban Holdings II, we found that it had been purchased in 2018 by units of PNC Bank, not not just subsidiaries or companies that PNC owned or co-owned, but units of the bank. And the paperwork was signed by employees of PNC's affordable housing unit. And PNC did not deny at any time that it was the real owner of that property and of the sister property, which is called Midtown Plaza, that's two blocks away. And I understand that two days after your story came out, there were maintenance crews at Highview. It sounds like your reporting may have had some real impact there. Yeah, we did return to Highview two days after the story came out. Uh, And in the aftermath of the story, PNC had said, hey, we recognize there's a problem here. Uh, We're going to do something about these maintenance issues. So uh, that that week, there were uh, maintenance people all over the place to an extent we had certainly not seen before. Uh, we could see fresh spackle on the walls and ceilings. Uh, we uh, saw folks working on the roofs. Uh, uh, a construction trailer was out in front of one of the buildings that had been uh, a bit left vacant because of smoke damage for a long period of time. Uh, residents were in the process of being moved shortly after that. Uh, so things, oh, and, and the uh, company that had been managing the property for PNC was, it, was in the process of being replaced. So a lot happened pretty rapidly after the stories came out. And affordable housing is an issue across the country, not just in Pittsburgh. Say that there's someone out there listening and they're not quite convinced that this issue touches their family or their community. I mean, you know, what do you say to someone who's just not quite sure that with all the other issues that we're dealing with right now, that affordable housing is maybe not at the top of their list of something they might be concerned with? Well, I feel like part of why we wanted to do these stories, though, is to sort of show that this is a growing issue, housing and housing affordability. And, you know, even if it doesn't affect them personally, it does affect their neighbors and people in their community. And, you know, I think that was sort of what we were trying to highlight here. And I guess also I would add that even if people say, hey, that's not my problem, I don't live in affordable housing, I guess that bigger picture here. Also, these are publicly subsidized units. And so, I mean, even if you only care about it as a taxpayer, taxpayers uh, should be wanting their subsidized housing to be safe and healthy. And as I'm listening to you guys describe kind of the backstory here of Pittsburgh moving from, 
you know, a place where a lot of people own their own homes to a place where a lot of people now rent. And obviously, Pittsburgh's story is one of a city transitioning from an industrial, um, you know, a society where steel jobs and the jobs that come out of steel are really the primary employers. And, you know, same with the mill, mill industry that probably is affecting some economic issues in McKeesport. And I just wonder, although you guys aren't economist i mean this is sort of the story that we hear all over the country of like people trying to aspire to the american dream and if you work hard you can own your own home you can pay your bills and as we're seeing during this pandemic fewer americans can really make it work that that's certainly true roxy and and that's a big change in places like uh mckeesport Uh, that had been an industrial town where obviously in the past a lot of the workers in the mills down by the river would just live in the neighborhoods and, and could uh, could afford a home on the salaries that the mills paid. Now, uh, McKeesport has a lot of, it still has industry, but it also has a lot of a social services economy, both um, suppliers of social services and consumers of social services. Um, and the salaries are not what they used to be. Uh, meanwhile, while uh, housing prices were depressed in that town for a time, we've been hearing this year especially that um, the prices of houses have, have started to rise dramatically as kind of a, as a, there more, there's more speculation in the housing market than perhaps there was for a while. So there's a, those two factors kind of conspire. Um, more speculation in housing raises prices. Uh, the social services economy versus the industrial economy means lower salaries. And that then, of course, pushes folks more into the renter market and provides less home ownership. Rich Lord and Kate Giamarisi have been reporting on a series of stories for WESA and Public Source. Kate and Rich, thank you for your reporting. Been a pleasure, Roxy. Thanks for having us. is sometimes called the Paris of Appalachia. But because it's a city in the Rust Belt, people don't often think of it as Appalachian. What does it mean to be an urban Appalachian? Marie Manila has some thoughts about that. She's a writer who grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, a city along the Ohio River. Manila spoke with my colleague Liz McCormick about how she uses her work to push change in West Virginia and around the world. Manila started off by reading from an essay called Powerless about a trip she took out west. It was meant to be a way to dip our toe into Nebraska and check it off our list. White Clay was just a dot on the map, a one-street town of a dozen weather-worn buildings and ten inhabitants, badlands of a different kind that sold four and a half million cans of beer per year. That's a lot of beer for ten people. The residents of Pine Ridge, two miles north, did most of the buying since selling alcohol on the reservation was prohibited. I didn't want to see what I was seeing outside the four beer-selling establishments, all white-owned. 
clusters of Native men, mostly slumped over on curbs, some passed out drunk. We never want to see stereotypes come to life, the damning blanket thrown over whole peoples. It's not racism, the white county commissioner said in defense of those liquor stores eager to make profit off alcoholism. It's just good old American supply and demand. The images shot me back to store vestibules in downtown Huntington where I'd seen homeless folks hunkered down against the elements or passed out or drunks shambling around outside the city mission. They weren't allowed inside under the influence, so they'd bounce off the outer walls. More recently, it was individuals OD'd in gas station bathrooms that made the nightly news, whole clusters narcanned back to life in shooting galleries. The Sackler family, who owns Purdue Pharma, made millions over peddling OxyContin in West Virginia, the drug that jump-started thousands of habits. In a 10-year period, Nearly 21 million pills were sold in Williamson, population 3,200. The Sacklers don't have to crash in vestibules and shooting galleries. They live cushy lives in Boko Raton. In their book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, Chris Hedges and Joe Sacco spotlight four American regions they refer to as sacrifice zones. White clay is one of them, as is Welch, West Virginia. These are areas of the country that have been used up and spit out in the name of capitalism, natural resources and people's health gobbled up, profits often funneled out of state. Once drained, the residents are abandoned, left in environmental and existential crises. Alcohol salves the ache, as do drugs. It's a despairing reality that's hard to look at head on. White clay was hard to look at, and I was eager to leave. Lucky for me, I could. Wow, Marie, that was beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. For our listeners, this is an essay that you wrote that will be published in Still the Journal in this fall's 2021 publication. Um, Thank you for giving us a little sneak peek into that. Marie, just so our listeners know, ahead of our interview, I asked uh, you to pick a passage from your writing that really resonated with you as what it means to be Appalachian. Tell us why you chose this passage to share. I chose it because I live in Huntington, and I see the fallout of drug addiction on a regular basis where I live. I consider myself an urban Appalachian writer since Huntington was the largest city in the state when I grew up here, and it's second only to Charleston now. And thus, I consider my experiences more urban than rural, and that's a view I want to present in my work. And also, my husband Don and I live very close to downtown in an area that is just ripe with petty crime, and the goods are pawned to support drug habits. So like those passed out folks that I saw in White Clay, it's a hard reality to see in my hometown, but it's one I I just can't turn away from. I don't want to be too despairing to listeners because Huntington 
is taking a very proactive approach and a humane approach to solving the drug problems here, issues of addiction and the subsequent crime that support it. So when folks do overdose here, social workers are dispatched along with the police and EMTs and uh, fire officials to help get those folks into treatment instead of just shuffling them off to jail or sending them back to their addiction. So I credit our mayor, Steve Williams, and our fire chief, Jan Rader, and others for having the heart to do this. You know, Marie, early on you mentioned that you identify as an urban Appalachian author. And I want to ask you if you can talk a little bit more about what that is and why that side of Appalachia is important to you to show to the world. Yes. As I said, when I grew up in Huntington, we probably had... 65 to 70,000 people at the time. And I truly felt like a city girl riding that bus into town and to shopping in all those uh, lovely clothing stores that we had down there. When I started writing fiction, I was writing about people like me. And I noticed when I tried to get them published in journals that focused on uh, Appalachia, um, I wasn't being accepted with open arms. And in fact, one editor sent me back a note and said, you know, I love the writing here, but could you send us something more Appalachian? And I understood that what a lot of Appalachian themed journals at the time were wanting to write about were the hollow dwelling coal mining experiences, which I love to read about. I absolutely love to read about, but that's not the West Virginia I grew up in. And it's not the one I could authentically write about. So I just continued to write my stories and kind of set them in, uh, you know, larger cities with the city issues. And um, what I'm seeing is that more and more writers in Appalachia are wanting to write those stories, too. That's also a part of Appalachia. There are big cities in Appalachia. There are urban problems in Appalachia that also need to be dealt with in fiction. So I'm delighted that there's a renaissance going on in Appalachian literature, and a lot of writers are, are tackling these issues. Marie, could you talk a little bit more about that? You, you said that you, you see this, this renaissance in Appalachian writing. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I think what this renaissance is about is showing to people beyond our borders, and I don't just mean West Virginia, I mean all of Appalachia, that we are not one monolithic thing, as the world often wants to believe, and as the publishing industry often wants to perpetuate, or, or used to, I think historically, they only wanted to present kind of the grit-lit side of Appalachia, you know, the dark lots of animals being killed and murders and, and all that, uh, the deliverance type of stories that want that to be all that we're about. And that's not all that we are about. You know, we, we are urban, we are city dwellers, we are gay, we are straight, we are transgender. So this renaissance is giving voice to all of those, all of those people. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Marie, going back to, you know, the drug epidemic and how that in Huntington has shaped a lot of your writing, your work. I, I look, you know, at some of the other issues that we're dealing with today. The drug epidemic is certainly one that still continues to be a problem. But, you know, one other thing is, of course, we're, we're all in this global health pandemic, this coronavirus pandemic. There are issues of racial justice, 
poverty continues to be a big problem. And looking at these immediate issues, how are they shaping your writing today? Well, uh, a project that I spent the last several years writing tackled the the drug addiction problem that I see out my front window. So I really kind of dove headfirst into that. Plus, I've also been writing a lot of essays. That's what I did during the pandemic. I spent the year writing essays, and I've been writing them for four to five years now. But I noticed that what I'm drawn to write about are the same issues that I'm drawn to write about in my fiction, which are issues of race and class and gender. And I think the reason I'm drawn to those is that I grew up in the 60s and 70s when I saw firsthand, at least, well, maybe not firsthand, but on the news, fights for civil rights and women's rights were constantly on the news. And what I noticed was the fierceness of all those marchers. But what I also saw were the folks on the sidelines hurling the cruelest epithets at those marchers, you know, wielding baseball bats and spitting at them. And I knew which side I wanted to be on, which was the side of inclusiveness and equality. So that stayed with me. And I think that's why I'm drawn to write about those issues in my fiction and now in my nonfiction. So when I started writing nonfiction, I wanted to write about the Me Too movement. I wanted to write about issues of racial inequality that I witnessed, you know, growing up here in West Virginia. You know, we're in 2021 now, but what we've seen over the last few years is that those issues have never gone away. They just went underground. And now they're out in the open again, which is good. That's the only way we can tackle them is to look at them head on. We have to be citizens of the world. And if I can use writing to address that, that's the tool that I'm going to use. Marie, you've recently been recognized as the 2021 Appalachian Heritage Writer in Residence at Shepherd University. And one big part of that has been also your book, The Patron Saint of Ugly, published in 2014, that won the Weatherford Award that year and has been translated into French, too. It's a, it's a, it's a book that has done incredibly well and continues to capture the fascination of readers. But as part of the Appalachian Heritage Festival this year, it has been chosen as the one book, one West Virginia common read by the West Virginia Library Commission's West Virginia Center for the Book. Talk with us a little bit about this book, The Patron Saint of Ugly, and why you think that it continues to capture readers. Mm. Well, I will say that it's probably the closest thing to autobiography that I'll ever write, though if you read it, you will question that. The main character is a young woman named Garnet who was born with port wine birthmarks just covering her body that looked like a map of the world. And those land masses shapeshift over time, depending on what's going on geopolitically around the country. And if, if that's not enough, Garnet may or may not be able to heal people. The seed of the novel came from the fact that I was born with a port wine birthmark on my hand and wrist that I always thought looked like North and South America, including the Panama Canal. And Garnet is also, she's half Italian, as am I. And the novel is also set in the area of Huntington where I grew up. One of the reasons I wrote the novel is that I love magical realism. Ever since I read Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, 
and Garcia Marquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude and Isabella Allende's everything that she ever wrote. I love magical realism. And I'll give you a brief description for your listeners. It's writers create worlds that are very much like the worlds that we live in. It's here on planet Earth. However, unusual things happen that are treated as normal. So in The Patron Saint of Ugly, when Garnet's birthmarks shapeshift, it's kind of treated as normal, as are her hit or miss healing abilities. And one of the goals of magical realism is to have readers look at this world that's being created in the novel with a new set of eyes so that when they put the novel down and then look at their very real world, they may look at it with a new set of eyes. And that was my goal in Patron Saint of Ugly. I wanted to present a view of us, not only to outsiders, but to insiders that would make them look at us in a new way. I wanted Garnet to be a potential saint. I wanted her to have magical qualities. I wanted her to be beautiful. And though that's a struggle for her to believe throughout the course of the novel, by the end of the novel, she does begin to believe that she is beautiful and that she is a saint. And one of the things I talked about at the Appalachian Heritage Writers in Residence Festival was that so many West Virginians and Appalachians, I think, have been crushed by all the demeaning, belittling stereotypes that we've endured over the last you know, 150 years or so, we're not immune to it. And we often don't feel as if we're deserving or, or worthy of love and respect. And we are. And that's one of the goals of the novels was to show not just to outsiders, but to ourselves that we are deserving and beautiful and worthy of love and respect. We're not expendable, as many outsiders would have us believe. That was writer Marie Manila speaking with Liz McCormick. And hey, Marie Manila's Urban Appalachia makes us think about an upcoming project that we could really use your help with. We're asking listeners across our region, do you feel like you are Appalachian? Listeners in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, do you identify as Appalachian? You can email us a voice memo to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Oh, and we're hiring. We're looking for a part-time associate producer and a part-time grants manager to work on our Folkways project. See the job descriptions on our website. Again, that's wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfer. Other music this week was provided by The Lua Project, West Swing, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Hey, we are sad to say farewell, for now, to the very awesome Jade Arthur Holtz, who's been our associate producer this year. Jade, we will miss you, and please don't be a stranger. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. You can subscribe or download all of our stories at our website, wvpublic.org. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.